And when I hear them say, mama, like, that's when we at, that's when they got real with me. At one point, Derek Chauvin even, like, looked up into the camera, and it was just this impassive, cold-hearted look. I think for so many people, that just showed for them how it seemed like how little George Floyd's life mattered. Stop. Why? He can't breathe. Can't you see that? Show him some humanity. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. I watch this man murder another man that looked like me. That just ignited a level of outrage that could not be contained. It required people to hit the streets all over the world, and they did. Protests across the country now turning deadly. Anger spilling into the streets over the death of George Floyd. Overnight, nationwide unrest. Demonstrators clashing with officers over the death of George Floyd. Parts of the city in flames overnight. Thousands have filled the streets calling for justice. Turning violent in Portland, Oregon, where police clashed with protesters well into the night. Three years out from the summer of George Floyd now, what really changed, what didn't change? Three years out, what is there to say about 2020? It was a monumental year. The single greatest year-over-year increase in the homicide rate in the past hundred years. Wow. It was because of the racial reckoning. I do see um, some positive side. The one positive I see to the BLM is that prior to 2013, a cop could do almost anything and never get punished. Many of us were feeling optimistic that we were achieving the society we wanted together. We forget that civilization has faced more divisive moments in the past and scarier moments, and we've come through it. So I am an optimist for that reason. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Wrong Think. This week, I'm in conversation with the writer, public thinker, and podcaster, Coleman Hughes. Coleman is a friend. He's also a thinker that I think is extraordinarily exciting, rather subtle and penetrating in his understanding of what is going on in 21st century America, specifically around matters of race, but certainly not confined to that. I couldn't think of anybody that I'd rather talk to on the three-year anniversary of the summer of George Floyd, and also on the last episode of this iteration of the Wrong Think podcast. Wrong Think isn't going anywhere, but I am stepping away to take a small break to bring you a new program of one-on-one interviews like the one you're about to see. So now, without further ado, here's Coleman Hughes. Coleman, it's great to see you again. The last time I saw you, I believe you came up to my class. Yes. At Bard College recently, and it was a really interesting conversation. Even in a class called Black Heterodox Thinkers, I think that my students were still not quite ready for some of the views you were able to hit them with, which is really interesting and got me thinking, like, why do you think it's so difficult for people to intuit heterodoxy in Black people, but they would never be surprised that what some white people are liberal, some white people are conservative, some white people are super progressive. It, it, it wouldn't, no one would ever say that that contradicts their expectations of that person's whiteness, right? Yeah, I think people see Blackness as embodying a politics and an ideology 
rather than just marking basically an ethnic group. So when they, so for example, there's been times, maybe one or two, where I spoke in public and gave my views, and someone comes up to me afterwards and says, "Do you identify as black?" <laughs> and at first, I was so thrown off by this question because I was like, "Yeah, sure, sure, I do." But I realized the reason they were asking was because they had trouble literally processing. They were short circuiting in thinking and seeing a person that identifies as black have these sorts of views because blackness is seen as synonymous with progressive racial justice activism. Right. Which is something that I've, I've tried to understand in the, you know, in the most generous way possible, because I understand that there's a lot of feelings involved in expectations that people place, especially sometimes other black people place on, you know, a kind of notion of solidarity that seems like a kind of moral rectitude. And I think that a lot of white people who don't think about or not other non-blacks who don't think about these things very hard, just assume that like evidence of being a good person is having a certain set of views that they believe should go with black people. If everybody's interested Mm -hmm. in, you know, a kind of improvement of uh, historically marginalized people. But in my own personal experience, as much generosity as I try to apply to that view, it always contradicts not all, but quite a lot of my experiences actually with growing up around and knowing other black people, specifically, you know, older black people and people not necessarily from certain school backgrounds or urban environments like Mm -hmm. super progressive, you know, cities on the East or West Coast. You know, I'm thinking specifically of my father, who's, I think he has highly typical black attitudes and would be probably described as culturally conservative, even though he wouldn't be voting Republican. And I think that that's something Mm -hmm. that just doesn't register with many people, just how typical certain conservative attitudes are among black people. And, you know, no matter how many times, you know, somebody like you or other writers who break that mold try to say that this is actually a position that, you know, exists within the black community. You know, John McWhorter has written quite a lot about this. Um, It seems that that just isn't something that people feel makes sense on like a natural level of what they expect. And I wonder, what does that mean for you when people ask you after you've given, you know, a really intelligent uh, discussion about something like affirmative action or something like reparations, and they ask you if you identify as black afterwards. I mean, how how does that make you feel? It's just shocking because I take it such for granted that black people have diverse viewpoints. Like you, if I were to sample a discussion of my black extended family, you would find lots of disagreement about almost anything you could name. And it would not be the stereotype in lots of, frankly, liberals, you know, heads, which is black people are the most loyal Democrat voting bloc, true. But it doesn't follow that uh, all black people think similarly or liberally or progressively. Uh, In some ways, black people are the most conservative voting bloc in the Democratic Party. Uh, if, if we're going to sort of frame it that way, we should also add that, right? Right. Most loyal and most conservative. And so the kinds of things that I say would not be so alien, at least many of them would not be so alien to your average black family reunion, except for that I'm saying them in public where white people can hear, which is a thing that a lot of black people who would agree with me privately would oppose my doing. So the notion is there are certain truths that you can say in black company, but you can't say them 
outside of black company. And so, and that's like an old attitude. I think it's an old, almost slavery mindset where we are in a war of all against all. We're in a, we're in a race war, essentially. And anything said publicly has to redound to the advantage of our race, right? At least that's that's a mindset that a lot of people have. I think it's an anachronism at this point. And I think public honesty is what we more and more should be striving for, though I can understand historically where that mindset comes from. Yeah, I can too. But I think back to the publication of my first book in 2010, uh, which was, you know, a coming of age memoir, but was also critical of certain pressures that the glorification of a street identity through hip hop culture, I Mm -hmm. thought presented on black masculinity specifically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got so much speaking opportunities out of that book. And this was still the Obama era. I mean, it was a very different era than it has been since I would say, you know, just a few years after that, since Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and then through Black Lives Matter and George Floyd in the summer of 2020. I mean, it was really in 2010, there was a kind of conversation. I was always invited to HBCUs and to certain Black institutions to talk. And the crowd, when I, you know, not uniformly, but quite a lot of the crowd would be nodding their heads along and saying, mm-hmm, that's right. And really agreeing yeah. with my critiques of the negativity that can be found in not all, but in mainstream and really influential hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. And then you came on the scene um, a few years later and you wrote a piece where you said that, you know, you just mentioned that, oh yeah, there's polling. Most black people, major- a majority of black people actually um, think rap music has a negative impact on, <laughs> on black people. And that seemed like something mm-hmm. that was like, everybody actually acknowledges this together in, in rooms together, but reading it in a paper. I mean, people got upset. I think that you mentioned that and it seemed like something that was impossible to believe. And it's just one of these kind of contradictions that I find very difficult to reconcile about what everybody kind of knows and understands um, and then what is allowed to be part of the official narrative. Yeah, I think it's almost a mindset that calls to mind like an Israel-Palestine conflict where like you can imagine both sides are so convinced the other side is pure evil and and the enemy that there are many truths that you would want to know about your side but that you would it would be synonymous with treason to tell the other side right it's it's actually a war mentality right it's it's a mentality that's appropriate in wartime because you know you want to know that your ukraine wants to know if it's if it's running out of missiles but they don't want russia to know that right that's what it is to be in a war mentality and so and again you could argue during the times of slavery and and maybe even Jim Crow, that that actually was kind of an appropriate attitude, that maybe it was the case that white people's image of black people was so paramount and had to be shaped so gingerly in order for them to give us rights that we had to kind of have a somewhat dishonest PR campaign about our own problems. Is that still the case? I mean, I don't know. I I think that more honesty at this point would be much better. I think it would be better for Black people to uh, say honestly and responsibly those things that we are comfortable saying uh, amongst each other uh, out loud. And I think that would be a much healthier dynamic than, and I know you've noticed this, and and I think you've, you've probably talked about it on your podcast, this toxic dynamic of, I can imagine all these probably white and and or or just non-black people in general going on their Twitter feed or their Instagram feed and getting just like a fire hose of 
black teenagers committing crimes, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like algorithmically boosted, curated content, uh, watching black teenagers beat up bus drivers or whatever, right? Right. Um, and so, like, what would be healthier? We can't talk about anything, honestly, in an interracial context, but people are just privately watching two straight hours of black teenagers committing crimes. Or let's have like a reasonable adult conversation about the real issues and trust, have enough like trust between different races of people that I don't have to launch a PR campaign to re- sort of curate the image, your image of me, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. A few points you raised. One is the idea of a wartime mentality, which I think is a really apt way of putting it. I hadn't quite phrased it before that way, but the implication of that is that there are two separate peoples. I mean, it's this examples you cite, those are separate peoples. They're not, um, Mm -hmm. it's not a civil war. It's the implication is that we're not actually all in this American family, which is the only way that actually these issues would be resolved. And the, the word trust comes up there because to be a kind of homogenous ethnicity, to become an American ethnicity that would transcend color differentiations and lineage from different ancestry pools, we'd have to actually have this trust that we are actually achieving this unity of people that we often pay lip service to, but I think maybe in our private lives and fundamentally, we don't, enough of us don't quite feel. Mm-hmm. How do we move towards a society where we build that trust, where you don't actually have to be employing a PR campaign on behalf of what you consider to be the separateness of the subgroup you belong to? I mean, that really clarifies something that has been bothering me. And I think it's it's this separateness, this this idea that you would even need PR. Because, you know, in France, for example, people have political different where I'm talking to you from and where I, I live most of the year, people have different political ideologies, people have regional differences, but they don't actually need to do a PR campaign. You know, I don't believe conservative French voters need to do a PR campaign about who they are fundamentally for progressive or leftist French voters. You know, there's still this mm-hmm. underlying unity and, and trust on a societal level mm-hmm. that I think is really lacking in America. And obviously there's the fundamental issue of slavery underneath it all. But I wonder what you think about how we might move towards a more trusting society. Yeah, I really, that's the million dollar question. I wish I had a good answer to that, but I think everyone should feel that they have a responsibility in their own lives to be honest and vulnerable with, to just be 10% more honest and vulnerable than you would tend to be. You know, I think that's an ask that I can make in good conscience. You know, I, I always like Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier mm-hmm. on meditation, because too many books promise too much and ask too much <laughs> of people in that vein. So they end up doing nothing at all. But if you promise something modest and achievable, you may actually make a serious change in your life. And and a small change can be a big change. Uh, it I don't know that, that may seem glib to say, but mm-hmm. yeah. So I think it's on everyone to just push themselves and on people like us as well to push ourselves to just be a little more honest and vulnerable with people that we may not view as sort of on our team in some way. And other than that, that sort of individual level responsibility, maybe there are some systemic level changes to social media that can be made so as not to amplify this because social media is what has amplified this in the past 10 years. You mentioned like 2013 as the year that things changed Mm -hmm. when your book uh, went from something sort of mainstream consumable (laughs) to something a little bit like 
maybe canceled. Yeah, that rings true to me as well. And what changed at that time? Social media, right? 2013 was around the year that the majority of Americans, I think it was 2012, the majority of Americans had an iPhone and, and social media. Mm-hmm. And that totally changed the dynamic. And ever since then, people have felt that racism is such a anti-black racism in particular is such a, a scourge and a daily occurrence. And you're seeing algorithmically boosted videos and stories and so forth. And you're, you're yelling at strangers that have been put into your newsfeed precisely because the algorithm knows they're mm-hmm. going to piss you off the most. And it's created this enormous illusion, I think, of um, the world is worse than it seems. People are worse than I thought. And it's made us all more cynical. And uh, it's, a, it's a real tragedy. And it's, it's difficult to understand how we roll that back because it's so profitable for companies to appeal to our worst instincts. Yeah. I mean, I think about the point you've made a couple of times about algorithmically boosted like images of the absolute worst of a certain identity group. Oftentimes it happens to be poor inner city black people. Uh, these videos, it's kind of, it's racism porn, really. And there's been such an uptick of that. I've just felt you've been smart about this for a while. And I've admired the way you've actually been able to handle your social media. But it just felt, um, I would say since Elon took over, but in the past few months, it got to a point where I realized that it was, it really was actually affecting me as a thinker. Like I just felt that if I didn't do something like I had to take a drastic step and just leave Twitter, at least for the foreseeable future, because I felt that I couldn't like rest in this area, this area of nuance and trying to read other people generously as much as I wanted to. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, just seeing the absolute worst side of every group that I disagree with. And then also being subjected constantly to things that I don't, wouldn't follow on my own and just sort of being thrown in my feed, like heightened kind of really ugly racism. And so I don't know what the solution is as long as social media continues to be such a presence in our lives. But one thing that I did want to really talk to you about today, and I don't want to, I feel like social media is a conversation that I probably get into with every single guest because it's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's been such a central component of my professional life uh, in the past mm-hmm. decade or really the past five years. But what I want to talk to someone like you about specifically, you, you're, you're, you're somebody actually that, you know, I've most wanted to ask this about. We're Three years out from the summer of George Floyd now, that's kind of a lot of time to take a step back and ask ourselves what happened, what really changed, what didn't change, and what some of the reactions that that summer brought about mean now. And, you know, I'm working on a book about um, the summer of 2020 and the confluence of the pandemic and the racial reckoning and the, the election that's now coming back to repeat itself again in 2024. And I'm finding myself having a lot more questions than necessarily answers three years out. And I wonder what you make of it and what you think we've achieved and where we maybe have regressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So three years out, what is there to say about 2020? I mean, 2020 was, it was a monumental year, I think. It was, uh, I don't know, it's a a year like 1967 or something. It's like a a year in American history that I think our children should learn about. I think it's a really important year. I also think it's a year that will almost certainly be misconstrued and missummarized in lots of mainstream accounts. You know, what people are going to write 
you know, I, I assume your version of 2020, I think, will likely be much more honest and <laughs> try in all in all likelihood. But look, what I expect a lot of people to write in mainstream sources about 2020 was that this was a year of racial reckoning, right? That's the sort of mandatory line to trot out about 2020, the year of racial reckoning, the year when America finally reckoned with white supremacy and racism. And we finally started having a conversation about the entrenched legacy of slavery and so forth. What I would like to say about 2020 is that it was the single greatest year over year increase in the homicide rate Mm. in the past 100 years, according to Pew. In the past 100 years? Yes. Wow. According to Pew Research. And that didn't happen in any of our peer countries, didn't happen in Canada, UK. It was not because of the pandemic. It was because of the racial reckoning, right? It was because of the defund the police as policy and as ethos, mass retirement of police officers. Mm -hmm. You saw cities losing one in every four cops that they had on payroll and a general unwillingness to stand up for, for law and order. Right, law and order rhetoric is considered to be racist. It's a, it's a code. It's a it's a dog whistle for white supremacy. Not only was it the single greatest year over year increase in homicide in a hundred years, that increase was almost entirely felt by the black community. Mm-hmm. It was not borne equally by whites, Hispanics, Asians, etc. It was highly concentrated. Right, you know, I I just read today in the New York Post that since 2020, the something like 50% of black and Hispanic kids have, uh, I should actually get the exact number, but like the truancy rate for black and Hispanic kids post COVID has been absolutely abysmal, right? Like to me, if we're going to weigh the costs and benefits of the racial reckoning, the Black Lives Matter moment, we have to be honest about what is on the cost side of that letter, mm-hmm. which is probably thousands of lives, probably several thousand actual souls dead and torn social fabric, businesses burned and looted, some of which are black owned, mom and pop shops that may never come back, you know, businesses that had to board up for good. And I personally fail to see what is so good on the positive side so as to outweigh that. Now, I'm not saying there was nothing good. Yeah, I wonder if you do see um, some positive side. The one positive I see to the BLM movement in general is that prior to 2013, a cop could do almost anything and never get punished. And that didn't even have a racial dimension, right? Like there are examples of cops shooting an unarmed six-year-old white boy. That has happened and cops have gotten zero punishment, right? right? So that was the status quo prior to BLM movement. Impunity, yeah. Yes. And so that's a very toxic status quo because like anyone, cops are going to be their worst selves if there's no incentive to be better, right? If they know they will never get punished. So that's the one good thing that has come of it. It's hard for me to say that that outweighs the bad though. So I hope that the history of 2020 is written and understood in view of the absolute, you know, catastrophe of the rise in in murder and crime and all of the downstream consequences of that for Black Americans. What about the resentments that have come out of 
2020. I've been thinking about that more and more. When I began working on the book, it was 2021. And it seems that there was initially enormous re- uh, support for Black Lives Matter um, throughout the summer of 2020. And it kind of peaked around August and then it dropped off mm-hmm. by the time that Jacob Blake was shot. But it seems that in the past year or two, the kind of resentment about making, I guess, race and the kind of need for addressing all kinds of inequities that ever can be described between and among racial groups, the central focus of every single policy of every single kind of institutional decision-making process. It seems like that has really begun to backfire. I mean, recently, Camille and I were talking about how one of the weirdest things that just was reported on in the New York Times was like, all of these companies that pledged billions um, to the DEI industry and other processes like that are now reevaluating the effectiveness of DEI, seeing that it's actually not working and hiring DEI consultants to fix the old DEI consultants. And they, they slap a new term on DEI, they, they slap belonging on. So it's like DEIB or something like that. And they come into... Oh my God. Is this like the LGBTQification of DEI? We're just... Yeah, I think we're going to keep putting letters on. This is what we do now. We just like make acronyms longer as a society. We do. I mean, because <laughs> yeah, because we can't get it right on the first swing. But, you know, it's kind of, yeah. it's a real crazy admission that happened, which is like, there's lots of kind of bad outcomes that happen when people are forced to constantly view everything as a competition, a battle royale among identity groups. Obviously, that's a bad way to, you know, to live in many institutional spaces. That resentment, I think, is really powerful. It's driving, you know, a lot of our politics right now. It's manifesting in what will probably be a serious overturning or reevaluating of how affirmative action works in society. I mean, there are real ramifications from heightening everybody's awareness of racial difference, I think. Um, And I know that you've been, you know, at work on your own book that probably touches on some of these themes. And I wonder, affirmative action is a good arena to dwell in for a bit. What is the kind of is the backlash to affirmative action that has been building and probably got a boost from the summer of 2020? Is that ultimately a kind of own goal or is or was that inevitable? Or how do you see these things as being linked or not linked? Yeah, well, let me first say about DEI that a lot of DEI around 2020, and I don't think this was true in like 2010, because DEI has been around a very long time, right? Diversity, equity. Yeah, that's true. Not in the kind of pervasiveness that it has been in more recent years. Yeah, it's like, it like turned from heroin to fentanyl around (laughs) 2020. And what it has been in the past several years is basically a moral ranking of Americans, right? Where old school racism ranked people by their, you know, alleged intelligence and competence and, um, and so forth. DEI basically ranks people by how good of a person you are in virtue of your race. And white people are, are the lowest in the sense that you're in, you know, white people are inherently racist. They are, um, insecure and just broken as a people and people of color are sort of enlightened and emotionally mature and basically perfect and white people essentially just have to be coached out of their inherent character flaws as a race that's the basic that's the elite level. Yeah, that's like the that, yeah. that happens in elite spaces, right? Yes, like Robin D'Angelo. You know, I'm not saying all DEI is this 
divisive, but certainly D'Angelo is and anyone who takes after her school of thought. And obviously that generates resentment. I mean, this it generates an enormous amount of resentment, understandably. And I don't think, I think a lot of people who resent it don't say so publicly because they are afraid of getting canceled. And so it's easy not to realize how much resentment has been generated by that style of politics. And it may show up in the polls, it may show up in other ways, uh, but it's really out there. Right. And it, it is an own goal. It is an own goal in that way because people that feel that much resentment, they may end up going further than their true values in rejecting the source of their resentment. They may throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah. Instead of kind of moving towards this progress that many people, I think, really felt we were making around the turn of the century. And you yes, know, and by the way, decade. I think it's also own goal in a more practical sense, which is... You know, if you're a, a white employer of a small business, would you, why would you hire a black person, right? Like, would you hire a black person knowing that there's a chance because you've been hearing in the news that if you had to fire them for some legitimate reason, that they would sue you unfairly and you wouldn't get a fair shake in the media? And, or like, would you want to mentor a young black person if you're a white person? Well, maybe 10 years ago, you wouldn't be so afraid, but maybe now you've been made to resent the whole racially divisive kind of mood of the moment. And maybe you just say, you know what, screw it, right? And how many people are doing that silently without talking about it? And and I, I think it's very bad for interracial harmony. And I think it's it's very difficult to measure as well. That's a powerful point. I mean, just a couple of days ago, there was a piece in the Times about a woman named Robin Europe at Equinox Gym, uh, who, when she was fired, you know, there was a dispute over whether it was about her lateness over a period of 10 months or so that she acknowledges or whether it was racially motivated. And a jury awarded her $11.25 million. And I think that that is just one of those things that you're making quite a powerful point about, which is that that might be a victory for a single person, but it seems like it's so fraught and the potential downfall is so expensive if there's even something that can be ambiguously conceived of as racism that it might actually be that many people say, you know, I can't even afford for something to go wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, it actually is one of those, you know, it, it is one of those situations where a heightened awareness of racism lurking under every kind of interaction and a denial that there's a level of ambiguity to all human interaction and there has to be a certain amount of good faith. It, it, you know, it, it brings back the point you were making about a kind of war footing that people are on. And it seems to me that that's just a very bad way for, for groups to interact. Or if you take the, you know, the incident, the really tragic killing of Jordan Neely in the subway um, recently, it wasn't initially discussed in many influential spaces as being you know, a matter of disorder in cities or homelessness or poverty or mental health. It was initially framed as, you know, a man was killed because of white supremacy, because of racism. It, it immediately kind of looks for that framing. And there must be a certain degree of, I think you've talked about this quite powerfully in the past. There's a certain amount of unknowable motivation going on in all kind of human interaction. And there must be a kind of ability to just say, I'll never know after a certain level, right? And I can't just always assume 
that it goes all the way to white supremacy or racism in every interaction. Does that make sense as a, it's not really a question, yeah. so much as an observation that, that we are unable to live and, and kind of hold intention ambiguous situations anymore. It always goes to the superlative of the very worst historically inflected racist motivation. Right. And I mean, it's, it's worth lingering on this Equinox story. I, I found this pretty shocking, even though I've seen similar cases before. I'm not sure I've seen one with such a large payout. That seems so unjustified. It's enormous. If you th- even if it was, I mean, it's enormous, right? Ten million. I mean, it's it's absurd. And and so, I mean, I'm just getting the details from the New York Times article you sent me. But so she was late forty seven times in ten months, according to the company. So- <laughs> and it seems she doesn't dispute this. Not at all. It seems from the article she does not dispute that she was late that she was chronically late to her job, but believes that the lateness was not the reason why she was fired, that she was fired because of hostility to black people. And I'm not really seeing, I mean, like I I don't see anywhere where she was called the N word or anywhere where she was called a racial slur, which would be smoking gun evidence of that kind of racism. All I see is, is, uh, okay. So her supervisor delivered his vulgar takes on black female bodies without any examples, referred to non-white employees as lazy, and expressed the hope that he could get them fired. He called one black coworker autistic. Okay, so this is a kind of journalism that I absolutely detest for its vagueness. Because when it says referred to non-white employees as lazy, that's not a quote, right? The word lazy is a quote, but the rest of it's not a quote. So now I don't know whether the employers said all my black employees are lazy, which would seem like a racist thing to say. Or if he specifically said one person (laughs) who happens to be black is lazy. Exactly. Or whether he said Robin is lazy. She shows up late every time and she's and she's lazy. Right. And she happens to be non-white so that the article can say refer to non-white employees as lazy. That's an ambiguous sentence. And it's a really important ambiguity. And so, and express the hope that he could get them fired. Is he saying, I hope, I wish I could fire all my non-white employees? Or is he saying, I wish I could fire this freaking employee that's been late every single 47 day? times. <laughs> 47 <laughs> times. I mean, I don't know, man. Yeah. Okay. And he called one black coworker autistic. Okay. Was the guy, I mean, that's mean. That's certainly mean. But are we saying that he would never call a white employee behaving similarly autistic? Right. right. That's it's clearly an, it seems like an insult. But is it that is it about race or is it about the fact that this supervisor thinks the employee was acting in an antisocial way and gave a barbed insult? Right. I mean, I, I've heard many a white guy called autistic. Right. That's not like a that no one even alleges that the majority of autistic people are going to be white. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and, and no one even alleges that that's like a racist dog whistle. There's no article called The Long History of Calling Black People Autistic, right? That's like right. not even a thing. So the fact that he called one black coworker autistic seems completely irrelevant, right? And nevertheless, $11 million for this woman that was getting paid 75 bucks an hour, which is pretty good. But how could this be worth 75 million? I mean, sorry, eight, 11 million, unless half of that was her, her lawyer's fees. And even then, it's, it seems absolutely insane i mean it's it's astonishing no it's it's also one of those things where it's like if you can't criticize in any way even a non-racial way 
um, non-white people, but specifically black people, then by, necess by necessity, you must at all times treat black people with kid gloves, which means that you cannot actually have equal relationships, which I think is, you know, a major, I just, I cannot accept uh, that bargain. If that's the, the road to progress, it seems it, it's an unacceptable way of achieving a kind of false peace. If there is racial animosity, it cannot be that one group just may not at all ever be deemed lazy, even if an individual member of the group exhibits um, the characteristics of laziness or of autism, yeah. or the, that, that nothing can ever be said in a negative, that can be perceived in a negative light, even if it's not racial. But I have one more feeling about this, which is that I just don't know that even if there is a racial injury, that the racial injury is the be all and end all of all social interaction, that specifically because there may have been racism, that that is the most important thing that possibly could have ever happened. And that someone making $75 an hour is awarded an, an astronomical amount of money because the racial injury, the thinking goes, is something in a category of its own. I, I'm just not, I, yeah. I, I don't even know if that's the society I want to live in where there is something so bad and it, it can only be a kind of um, anti-Black racism that trumps all other considerations at all times. That has been infused into a lot of kind of uh, big event interactions between races lately. And I think again of Jordan Neely, it's just this idea that specifically any kind of anti-blackness is the worst thing that can possibly ever happen. Yeah, that I mean that's it's interesting to to that point to compare the kind of payouts people are getting over quote unquote racial discrimination to the kinds of payouts you would get if you know, like you lost use of your legs or something like that, right? Right. That's what I, thank you for a concrete example. That's exactly what I mean. I'm not sure you would get $11.25 million if you got harmed at Equinox physically. Maybe, maybe you would. But, you know, what's, what's interesting about that is, is to me, let's say I get harmed at Equinox and I, like I, I'm paraplegic, right? There's no amount of money you could pay me that would be worth losing the use of my legs for my life, right? It's like in most of those damages cases, the the harm is never actually repaid mm -hmm. by the money. Whereas like in this case, $11 million is worth way more than whatever harm she experienced by some workplace hostility at a $75 an hour job, right? Like, I mean, there's a case at Tesla where a, a oh, black yeah. factory worker was called the N-word. And what did he get? Something like $200,000 at least? It might have been more. I thought to myself, he got shortchanged. I'm sorry. If I were reading the Equinox article, I'd go crazy. No, I thought to myself, like, if I were a purely mercenary person, how much money would I require to be called the N word? Like, <laughs> I, I can tell you, if someone called me the N word at work, I would, I think I would probably tell all my friends for a few days, I would sleep completely easy that night. I don't give a fuck if somebody thinks I'm an N word. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. They're just a fucking idiot. But there right. are certain things that should not be allowed to happen in the workplace, right? Yes, I agree. But it doesn't damage me to the extent of $200,000. There's no, no emotional or psychological injury uh, equivalent to millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars even. And in most other cases, I think there is. Like the case of you break my legs or you make me a paraplegic. Yeah, I, you better fucking give me $50 million or something. And even that won't really be worth what happened. So it, it does say something about how we how we sort of measure these how we measure uh, the harm that that comes from these racial injuries. Yeah, the way the Times article describes it, it's 
indicative of tr uh, how transformative social movements around race and gender have reframed the way that juries think about the long shadow of emotional disruption that bigotry can produce. It seems that this is very much a kind of echo effect of the summer of 2020. It's like, you know, a few years ago, juries were not reframing the way we think about all these things and reconceptualizing, you know, a kind of racial Im uh, injury, even if it's just a kind of psychic injury as the worst thing that could possibly happen. And suddenly now it is. And I do wonder, you know, how long do you think these types of reverberations can continue to ripple out to, to, to last? Are we in a 10-year kind of cultural moment? Are we in a 20-year cultural moment? Um, some people argue that wokeness, and I don't love that word, but that this kind of social justice orthodoxy and this centering of identity at the centering identity at the center of everything, they've argued that this has already peaked. I'm not really convinced about that. I don't know that it's peaked. I know that there has been pushback and that in some places it's ascendant and in other places it seems to be on the retreat. But I wonder how you visualize the kind of moment we're in and how long you think it will last. I think the answer to that depends very much on what sector of society you're in. If you're in higher education, I expect wokeness to last a pretty long time. And I think there may even be colleges and universities where it hasn't yet peaked. If you're in corporate America, I think it probably did peak in like 2020, 2021, and will probably dec continue declining somewhat in the next few years. And so, and then in other sectors of society, I, I think I have less of a finger on the pulse. But certainly, in, in the, part of the reason people say it's peaked is because there's a study of mentions of woke words. Right. Musa Algarbi is the, is the scholar, the sociologist at Columbia I'm thinking of specifically. Yes. Uh, and I know Musa. Um, Shout out to Musa. Yeah. And, and that seemed to, it seemed like m research about racism and white supremacy spiked after 2020 and has now receded. And obviously, academics are aware of cultural trends and often tailor their research to what is trendy. They are no less vulnerable to cultural trends than the rest of us. So I, I do think to say it has peaked is true to some extent, but also it's kind of like saying violence peaked during World War II. It's like, yeah, almost definitionally it did, but that doesn't mean we are back to like a pre-2013 norm. We're certainly not. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, a sh 2020 was like a short peak within a longer peak of this of this trend. So that's sort of how I view it. Yeah. Ross Douthat said to me that it's more like a ratchet than like a pendulum. Uh, and that made a lot of sense, actually. It's, you know, after you ratchet it a couple of notches, it's not like you ever swing back to where it was before. It's, it's kind of, it stays at a certain turn. Um, and certain, mm -hmm. certain things will never go back. And it's not mm -hmm. just with race, it's also with, it's with gender and a lot of other ways of thinking that will just never return to that like Obama era. It's kind of, we are, many of us were feeling optimistic that we were achieving the society we, we all thought we wanted together. And mm -hmm. in some ways that was naive. I admit this now too, but it does seem that there is a kind of fatigue and a resistance in spaces that I think is very different in the past year and a half or so. Um, there's also a really nasty, and I think in some ways, just to be honest, very uh, a worse backlash that has gained a lot of momentum that has actually degraded our our social fabric more than 
much of the excesses of a kind of, you know, zealous social justice left have. Um, that's also not the majority of people, but I think that there's a dangerous polarization that feeds off of each other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly when the battle for the center and kind of reasonable people will be, will be won in most of these institutional spaces that really matter and set the tone. I do think that you're right to say that higher education is on a different trajectory than, than maybe than the corporate world for a variety of reasons. Higher education really does seem to me to be not even aware that it's in an area of excess. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. there's just a kind of appetite for more and more of this. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I, I remain optimistic. I don't know if you do. I, I wonder, like, you know, I know we have a hard stop. I could talk to you forever. You're mm-hmm. one of the most intelligent people I know. And I, and I'm, I'm grateful to count oh, you as somebody so. that I can talk to like this, but also I can just text Likewise. And, um, and pick your mind. Um, but yeah, are, are you ultimately an optimist? Yeah, I, I am ultimately an optimist, not because it's inherently my disposition or anything, but I think in the grand sweep of history, we are still in a moment that most people are doing better than their grandparents. And the world is a better and more enlightened and more prosperous place than it was 100 years ago. And recent backsliding on things like life expectancy notwithstanding, I still, I think it is myopic to think that the problems of the last 10 years are unsolvable or evidence of a permanent decline of civilization or or something like that. Um, I don't really see, first of all, I don't think that that's justifiable on the basis of evidence. I think that's, like I said, that speaks of people's tendencies to just not to live almost too much in the present. Mm -hmm. Presentism is a major, yeah. I I was thinking about this yesterday. Have you noticed how like every time summer comes around, if you live in a place that's seasonal like New York, everyone seems like surprised every year (laughs) when it gets warm. I'm guilty too. And I'm guilty of this too. It's like every year (laughs) when when it gets warm, I literally forget that it can be sunny at 8 p.m. And when it's sunny at 8 p.m., I'm like shocked every year. It's like yep. I've forgotten the past 27 years of my life when it happens every time. And this is, I think this is something humans are vulnerable to, which is we think we have a sometime, somehow like a short time horizon. And, and we forget that civilization has faced more divisive moments in the past and scarier moments and we've come through it. So I am an optimist for that reason. And I don't really see the value of pessimism. Pessimism might get clicks. Um, we're doomed. Ask any religion. The, the we're doomed narrative sells very well. End times narratives sells very well for sort of public intellectuals and writers and so forth. I don't think it actually helps. I don't see it. It's not like a program that can be acted upon to say we're doomed and civilization right. is in decline and you know it's it's the end. It's end times. So I first of all, don't think it's actually justified. And second of all, I don't think it's useful. I agree. So the only choice we have uh, to paraphrase James Baldwin as people who've been racialized as black in America is to remain optimistic. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's the note I'd like to end on. Thanks a lot. I know you're really busy. Uh, You've been traveling a lot. You've been killing it. I'm a big fan. Um, Look forward to seeing you again. As am I. Yeah. Likewise. Cool. Thanks for coming on Wrong Think. My pleasure.